The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be become bread. <laughs> Much is made of the term if. In this case, Satan is raising doubt. He's saying that Jesus has something to prove here. In fact, in this very temptation, Jesus set excuse me, Satan set the pattern for Christian apologetics throughout most of the modern era. They have followed precisely what Satan wanted to sucker Jesus into. And if you look at how mm -hmm. Jesus handled it, you'll see that he resisted most of the po popular apologetic attempts to prove that he is the Son of God. Skepticism concerning the claims of Christ always presupposes that who Christ is is doubtful and needs proof. Prove that Jesus is the Son of God, the skeptic says, and in much the same way Satan asked Jesus to prove himself. If you are the Son of God, do this or do that. Who is Jesus going to prove it to? Everyone with him in the desert that day knew who, who Jesus was. Satan needed proof? No. Why was he there? Jesus needed proof? No. Why was he there? Jesus is his own proof. But Satan begins with that question, can we trust that? Hath God said? But now get this, if Christ is the starting point, there's no need of proof, or rather there's no way to prove a starting point. You either start with him and life can make sense, or you start somewhere else and nothing can make sense, not even Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus has nothing to prove. He has everything to show, show that he is the faithful son who will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, but nothing to prove. So Satan here has a double layer to his deception. First, he's asking Jesus to prove that he is God in the first place, as if Jesus, God, is not the starting point. Now just stop right there. If in your thinking your starting point is to find a way to prove who Jesus is, mm -hmm. you have intellectually played right into Satan's hands. Christian apologetics, that is Christian defense of the faith, and the Christian proclamation of the faith begins with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It doesn't end there, it begins there. The second layer of deception that Satan uses here is to ask Jesus to live like a real God would live, improve his condition. This is the same advice Satan gave to the grumbling Israelites out in the desert. That's one of the reasons Jesus is in the desert. He's walking through everything they failed to do. Satan to the Israelites said, Surely a God who can drown the Egyptians and kill their firstborn and take you out of that land with a mighty hand, he can take better care of you in the mm -hmm. desert. Get God to prove that you are his people, 
by giving you living conditions more befitting to the sons of God. And that's why the Israelites grumbled against Moses. Now, as true as this is, the challenging of the skepticism of the if and the then, if and then can also, and I've, and I've got to say this, just be a simple logical term that joins ideas together. Another way to say it is because you're the son of God, you can turn the stones into bread. Well, of course, that's true. Because you are a Christian, you can overcome. And that's why you always need to listen to the if to see if it is Satan challenging all that is true in a very innocent sounding question. Now, let's just get down to the text. What is wrong with Jesus turning stones into bread? Why wouldn't that be consistent with his nature? Well, first of all, mm -hmm. Satan thinks it's a good idea. This is something that I don't think sufficient account is taken of in our thinking. When Satan thinks something is a good idea, right off the bat, you should be thinking, why does this sound interesting to me? Why am I being drawn towards it? What is it that excites me here? See, when the promoters, just to jump to a very typical thing that, that we face all the time, certainly our children in school do, and now my grandchildren, when we go to educate them, when we go to teach them, when they watch any television show, we have to stop and say, what are the promoters of collective government, the promoters of child murder on demand through abortion, the promoters of a philosophy of life and history based on scientific proof that chance is the origin of everything. And when the promoters of every form of immorality and perversion being normalized and mainstream, when these people are in favor of something, your knee-jerk reaction, just automatic reaction, at the very least, would be st step back and to say, why are they making it so attractive? You might even need to ask, why does it seem so attractive to me? Why do I want to participate in that? Why do I want to be convinced of that? And right off the bat, the very first thing you should see, which is what Jesus saw, is that if Satan presents something, if somebody who is a fan of, of collective government creating a one-size-fits-all is in favor of something like helping the poor through government, right off the bat, you ought to be saying, wait a second, why would he want that? Why would he want something like this to happen? And to be able to see through what, what, what Satan is saying in the very innocent sounding, well, I mean, if you're God, you surely should be able to do something about the situation. What an innocent question. What's really going on here? Is it to enslave the very people that you claim you want to help? Is it to enslave the very people that you say cannot be free because, eh, I'm not even going to go into all that. You get the point of it. Secondly, if you look at what Satan wants to do with anything he says is good for you, you can get another picture of how Jesus handled his problem and how you can uh, see through what he's saying to you. When you look at Satan's promises, they will always look pretty good, like that loaf of bread. Satan promised Jesus, the bread is good, make some. These stones, don't let them stand in your way. And so whatever Satan offers from daydreams to genuine offers and opportunities to do things, if you'll just take a minute to compare the fruit of his promises with the fruit of what God offers in his word, you'll be stunned at the emaciated, broken sterility of the desert he offers on the other side of those dreams and offers. I was, I was stunned. There was a 
there was a pastor who ran for president, and he was on uh, whatever the Fox today. Now just listen to two minutes of the interview on the radio, and they said, "What are you going to do today?" Well, I'm going to go to church with my grandchildren. Now, mind you, he's older than I am. He's he's in his mid to later sixties. He's going to go to ch church with his grandchildren, and they said, "Oh, how many is that?" He says, five or six. Five or six? What is the sterile lie that our entire generation has accepted to say that when you're a, a, a grandparent, I'm not talking about five or six kids, I mean as a grandparent, you have so sterilized yourself and you have sterilized your children's minds to the extent that you have bought completely the lie that says, a small family is a good family. Planned Parenthood says that. And we've bought that. Why does that make sense to us? Well, I'll tell you why. You can get a whole heck of a lot more done if you don't have many kids to worry about, to tie you down, to wreck your life, to mess you up. Man, you think messing in their diapers is bad? It's messing with your life that takes it all away from you. So you step back and you say, I wonder why sterility seems so attractive to me just like that loaf of bread for Jesus. So, when you look at the promises of Satan, what he offers you, and then you compare it to what God wants to do, let's just look at how stones are woven into the life of Jesus. And at this point, I wanna say something about how I interpret the scriptures. Aside from everything else, and something I really encourage you to do, I had to go to jail to do it, because that's the only time I had enough free time, See how fast you can read through the Bible. See if you can do it in six or seven days. I hear these stories of people say they were so convicted they read through the Bible in three days. Honestly, I don't think that's possible. I'm not saying they're lying. They must have skimmed it. But just reading at a normal pace, it took me about five or six days to read through it, doing nothing but eating and reading the Bible. And so the thing that struck me at, at that time is is it, it reads like an, an epic story. It's, a, it's one of the most epic stories I've ever read. And so like all stories, things are woven into it that make the story work. I'm not saying they're made up, I'm saying they really were there, but, but, but they make the story like building blocks, building to where God wants to go with it. So, so what I try to do when I look at scripture is say, I wonder where those things are found elsewhere in Scripture. I wonder what's going on there when we find them. So, Satan has these stones, and he says, make bread out of them. We could do two things. We could look at everything God does with bread. We could do everything God uh, does with stones. I'm going to take the stones, because I've promised I'm not going to go for more than 12 or 13 minutes, today or any other day. Satan offers bread for stones. Look in every word that comes from the mouth of God to find out what Jesus is going to do with those stones. First of all, Jesus is going to be sure that none of Jerusalem's stones are left on top of one another in the lifetime of the people he was talking to that day. That's what comes at the end of his ministry. See these stones? Not one will be left. And they say, when? And he had just gotten through saying it's all going to take place in the lifetime of his hearers. This nation, this generation is going to bear the guilt of it all, all that innocent blood. Now, if that seems too much, that he's going to take all of Jerusalem's stones apart, Jesus promises to take the stony hearts and turn them into hearts of flesh through his prophets. He said the day is coming through his prophets in the Old Testament when he will take your hearts of stone and give you hearts of flesh. 
That's what Jesus does with stones. In fact, he will take his disciples and make them stones in the foundation of his temple and city of God. He's going to take his people and make them living stones and fit them together into a dwelling place of God. And when they pick up these stones to do to Jesus, to, excuse me, and when the people got mad at Jesus a little later on his ministry and they pick up stones to throw at him, he shows his power over the death penalty by walking right through the middle of that crowd, clutching their stones. See, he was with God when the terms of execution were written in the law of Moses. So he has nothing to fear from the false stones that men throw. He said, don't fear what those who can only kill the body can do to you. Fear rather him who can kill body and soul, and having done with that, cast it all into hell. See, Jesus is that stone of Ebenezer and the stones of remembrance that he put there in the middle of the Jordan. Thus far have you brought us, they were to remind God's people. Eat my body, drink my blood in remembrance of me. That those stones of remembrance. See, in fact, Jesus is that rock of our salvation. He's the rock in a weary land. He is the rock upon which you build your house or it will collapse in the winds of the rains. Jesus is the rock on which, which you must build your house, or there will be no house. Now, excuse me, Satan, what was that you said about the stones and the bread? You know, Satan coming to Jesus and saying, if you're the Son of God, make these stones into bread. That's amazing. Whoa, what do you think Jesus was going to do? Perform a miracle and go, wow, I must really be the Son of God. Hey, John, the Baptist, you're right. I really am the Son of God. Look, I can prove it. I can do this magic trick. Excuse me, Satan. What was it you said about stones and bread? Isn't that kind of like asking a trapeze artist to prove that he's a trapeze artist by saying, here, roll on the floor and do a somersault for me, if you are truly a trapeze artist, or take going to an MIT physicist to prove that he can do all this math by saying, all right, show me, do two plus two and tell me what that is. And here Satan comes to Jesus. And Satan comes to you. Satan comes to you with the same kind of cheap, shallow trick. And now for mere hunger, when Jesus is standing for his people, suffering temptations and all things like as we do, yet without sin, Satan wants him to do something with rocks and stones that would cause him to fail as the head of the captain, as the head and captain of our salvation. It would make all of his other stonemasonry count for nothing. Satan offers nothing in his advice, and yet it seems reasonable enough. Why shouldn't the God, Son of God use his power to eat? And Jesus answers with scripture, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The bottom line for Jesus is that the only way out of the desert and into the promised land is not by magical solutions, but by the ethical obedience of God's people. We're lost. That's it. We're done. Because you, they can't. You can't. Well, how about the miracles we can work? We can't. You can't. They can't. So it has to start with him living by every word of God and not by stopgap means. You see, miracles are not the normal way God wants to turn your life into a magic show. If you just had enough faith, every day would be a miracle. You've heard sermons like that of, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. It always seems to turn into jump it and hump it. I don't know what it is about that chain, but if you just follow, follow that, that name it and claim it stuff, it always ends up in who knows where. 
Miracles, though, are what God does for you when you are facing the consequences of refusing to believe his word and do it. Miracles are what God does in res- not in response to our faith, but in response to our failure. Otherwise, he wouldn't have talked about how little faith you need to work a miracle. Hey, you want to throw that mountain of the sea? Just have a tiny little bit of faith. Jesus is not tempted by some pissant miracle like turning stones into bread. In addition to all the other stones he's woven into the story of his life, from Genesis to Revelation, there's one particular stone which we remember today that he is going to use to make an eternal symbol of how death has transformed to life, the stone he rolls away from the mouth of his tomb. And that's why we have today Resurrection Day. By the way, for those of you who are concerned about obeying Caesar and all that kind of crap that a lot of the institutional church throws at you, the very act of the resurrection was Jesus committing a death penalty offense in the eyes of Rome. He broke a Roman seal. He rolled that damn stone away. That is a death penalty. Don't ever be afraid of the laws of this world where they refuse to be servants and ministers of the living God. Well, back to the desert. He's there because his people failed. You fail. Satan offers you like he offered Israel, like he offered Jesus, a magic show, a cheap trick miracle, and you fell for it. Now you know what I'm talking about. Think of almost every sin you have ever committed. Each was a vain hope that Satan would work a pissant miracle for you. And you fell for it. I fell for it. Jesus didn't fall for it. Real miracles are the result of the faith of the one who saw through every test, every temptation, and then did what is right in the midst of that test and temptation to restore the earth. Real miracles are when that faith of God himself holds you up in the crisis you face right now in this hour because of your lack of faith. That stone is the stone he rolls. He doesn't need to turn it into bread. He is the bread of life. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com 
to volunteer as a narrator, or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.